was able to use this photo ID method to match Comet with footage from the news from the 1970s of a dolphin that swam up a river in Ireland. Thanks for tuning in to episode 6 of season 1, We Blue Dot, a conservation podcast. Enjoy listening. Welcome everyone, wherever you're listening from. It's great to have Siobhan Moran on We Blue Dot today, who's the Community Engagement Officer with the Hebridean Whale and Dolphin Trust. She has a degree in environmental geoscience and a master's in climate change. Siobhan, thank you for giving us your time today and welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So um, tell us where you're joining us from today. I'm on the Isle of Mull in Tobermory. Um, I don't know what age your listeners are, but some of you might know it as Balamori. Um, <laughs> yeah. But but it's a real place, I, I assure you, uh, on the west coast of Scotland. Yeah. And how's life been over there over the last year or so in particular? I mean, the last year has been difficult for everybody, I think. But we're quite a small island community, so it, it has been really lovely to to kind of be part of that. And we've, we've really kind of yeah. pulled together and looked out for each other. So Yeah. yeah. And I can imagine it's quite beautiful in the in the summer as well. So it's quite a nice place to live. Oh, it's gorgeous. The sun's actually shining today, but uh, it's still pretty cold outside at the moment. So uh, yeah, not sunbathing yet. Still, still all the jackets. Needed. Yeah, maybe one or the one or two days of the of the summer that we have um, in Scotland that you can actually go out and sunbathe. Yes, that that one day of summer. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So um, the Hebridean Whale and Dolphin Trust sounds like a really cool place to work. Can you tell us a wee bit more about it and what your job entails? Yeah, sure. We're a conservation charity. Uh, we're based on the west coast of Scotland. We started up about 26 years ago and we actually kind of grew out of the early days of kind of wildlife watching whale tours. There was a chap called Richard Fairburns here on the Isle of Mull who started a business that was called Sea Life Surveys and he was taking tourists out whale watching. Almost immediately, people said that he was a con man because you don't get whales in Scotland. Mm. So how can you be selling whale watching trips? What are you doing? Yeah. Uh, so he started kind of recording that actually, you know, we do have whales and dolphins on Scotland and we kind of grew out of that. So, you know, as a charity, our focus is very much here on the West Coast, but it's about kind of really understanding the species that we have here and protecting and preserving it through kind of research, really. Yeah. We're a research-led organisation and we really champion citizen science. So it's, it's about working very closely with the communities that we're in and engaging with tourists here as well. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, I've got a bit of a dream job, uh, you know, do sometimes have to pinch myself when you realise that your job is, is taking people for walks, talking to them about whales having a cup of tea with them and, yeah. and talking about something that I'm really passionate about. So yeah, it's it's a fantastic group to work with. We're really lucky. We're quite a small team mm. and we're very much part of the community here. So mm. I feel very lucky. Yeah. And the islands on the West Coast, I mean, they are small communities, obviously, as you say. So you, you, I can imagine it's really important that you guys get involved in, and work with the local community quite a lot. 
and and those people who live over there they know the the seas around them best I'm sure they've all they've got lots of sightings to report to you and things they do absolutely yeah there's there's so much that we can learn from the communities and that's why we really kind of go down the route of citizen science you know we're we're a small team there's only so much that we can do but by working really closely with the communities we can have you know eyes on the sea right across the west coast of Scotland so yeah, it, it's a real privilege getting to visit all these different places. Each island has such a kind of unique uh, community, unique landscape, unique wildlife, and unique people. So it's mm-hmm. it's fantastic to be able to to work with these people. And you know, when I think of you know visiting an island, it's not just about kind of going for a walk and trying to see what whales I can see from there. It's it's also about uh, you know Ruth on the Isle of Mutt, <laughs> cup of tea with Nora on the Isle of. Um, and it, it's very much about yeah. making these connections and, yeah, learning from them, definitely. Yeah, it sounds like a very cool job. And um, in normal times before COVID, um, what would your day-to-day kind of entail um, in your working day? I mean, it's it's a real mix. Uh, across the organization we have you know lots of different people some of our team are based on our research boats we've got this fantastic yacht called Silurian and she sails around the west coast of Scotland uh, recording the whales and dolphins Uh, I'll maybe come back to you on that one Um, my job is very much kind of land-based whale watching which is something that I'm personally incredibly passionate about because it's you know accessible you know, you don't you don't need to go out on a boat to have incredible experiences here on the West Coast. You know, I do things like guided walks, public talks, interview people within the community to kind of hear their stories. Something that's become a bit of a kind of personal passion of mine is really exploring the unique culture here on the West Coast and kind of getting some of the stories out of that. Something I've really loved is in the course of my job, uh, discovering the Gallic names that they have for the whales and dolphins and the kind of story that tells so my favorite one is definitely uh, the name for a killer whale or an orca which we have a resident population of here on the on the west coast of Scotland Um, so really cool but they're known in Gallic as Madakuain now if there's any Gallic speakers out there they'll be horrified at my attempt at pronunciation (laughs) there but um, I try my best Uh, but if we translate Madakuain it means ocean wolf which is I think such a romantic name and really kind of descriptive because there's a lot of problems with the way that we talk about killer whales or orca. There's a lot of people in the kind of whale conservation world that feel very strongly that they should be called killer whale or they should be called orca mm. when, you know, should we call them killer whale? Because, I mean, they're a dolphin. So, mm. you know, all of this debate, I'm like, let's just pass all that over and talk about them as ocean wolves yeah. <laughs> as highly intelligent pack animals that hunt together I think it's a great name I think that's a more suiting name and I find that really interesting as well the kind of historical side of what local communities have known them as and, and stories that have been passed down and stuff yeah no that sounds amazing and you mentioned a wee bit about Silurian is it there the, the sailing ship so am I right in saying people can get involved and go out on trips once we can do things like that again <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Um, so kind of in all aspects of, of what we do as an organisation, we are very much about championing uh, citizen science. So we have this research vessel. She's actually got quite a, a sordid history, which I enjoy very much. She was impounded in the US for drug smuggling. Oh, wow. <laughs> and uh, a couple bought her, did her up, sailed her across to the Azores, actually, where she was used as a filming platform for Blue Planet One. 
so oh, cool. if you go back and watch blue planet and see amazing pictures of dolphins in the azores that was filmed on on our vessel mm -hmm. um so we've had her for oh god must be over 18 years now and what we do is particularly during the summer months kind of may well actually no we start in april normally <laughs> uh mm -hmm. through to october we sail all across the west coast of scotland and uh, we have four crew members on board and then we take six paying volunteers out with us. So we do survey expeditions that last between seven and 12 days. And what we're doing is we're collecting three different types of data while we're out. So while we're sailing, we'll have two of the volunteers kind of standing at the mast out on watch, simply spotting whales and dolphins and shouting that back to us. And we enter that in. Uh, we're also kind of towing a hydrophone behind us. So a hydrophone is, is basically a fancy name for an underwater microphone. I mean, people certainly can recognise something like a, a humpback whale song, but all whales and dolphins uh, vocalise and communicate or use kind of noise to navigate. So a bit like what we know about with bats, you know, a dolphin uses echolocation. So they'll be sending out clicks and listening for those echoes to come back. And that's how they hunt. It's how they see underwater. And then they also kind of make whistles and communicate. So we're touring this hydrophone to kind of pick up on all of that. The big thing that we study using the hydrophone data is the harbour porpoise population. Mm -hmm. So for those of you who are new to the whale and dolphin world, harbour porpoise is totally awesome wee animal. Um, it's the smallest cetacean. That's the fancy science word for whales, dolphins and porpoises. Harbour porpoise is the smallest one here in the west coast of Scotland. It's metre, metre and a half long. And they're quite shy. They're not like a dolphin. We won't see them jumping out the water. They tend not to approach boats. I actually once gave a training course to a group of people on how to identify harbour porpoises and other cetaceans. And somebody came up to me afterwards and they said, oh, you know, I, I think what I've been spotting is actually harbour porpoises. And I always just thought they were a bit of a disappointing dolphin. Aww. And so I'm, I'm here to advance my campaign to celebrate the harbour porpoise yeah. they're not that showy but they are incredible animals so they're one of the most effective predators they can hunt it's something like a 97 percent accuracy mm. on hunting yeah. mm. and i think i'll need to double, double check the numbers but i'm fairly certain a paper came out recently saying they hunt and kill up to 550 fish an hour Wow. Um, so they're incredible. They're really cool. Yeah. Um, really just because they're not quite so showy. So we, so we love mm. the harbour porpoise. But because they're not so showy, they're much harder for us to study because, mm. you know, they're quite small. If you've got any kind of wave, it's difficult to pick one out, mm. you know, and spot one. Mm. But because they are hunting, they are echolocating all the time and they echolocate in a very particular frequency so it's quite high mm. frequency not noise so our computers attached to hydrophone can automatically detect when harbour porpoises are in the area just yeah. by detecting these kind of high frequency noises um so it's kind of always fun at the end of the day when uh you've been out sailing and you say okay we spotted 12 harbour porpoises today 
and then yeah. kind of going back and looking at the hydrophone and saying like okay there were like three times as many harbour porpoises out there that we couldn't see but uh, yeah we were able to detect using this that's amazing though but that's the point isn't it about any sort of marine conservation is there's so well you can't see most of it you know unless you're diving in the water and it's kind of out of sight out of mind I guess to a lot of people but it's it's amazing that you've got these the technology to to hear them if not see them as you say absolutely I think people look out across the sea and what you see is a kind of flat surface um, but there's so much more going on under the waves uh, one of the reasons that there's a whole charity based here on the west coast devoted to the conservation of whales and dolphins here is because the incredible biodiversity here so there's been 24 different species of whale dolphin and porpoise have been identified in the waters wow. of the west coast of scotland which is huge it's a yeah. huge huge number obviously if you want to see humpbacks jumping out the water west coast mm. of scotland maybe not the best place for it but what we have here is really really unique biodiversity yeah. and and that comes down to the kind of hidden world underneath the waves if you've seen a map of the west coast of scotland it's incredibly complex there's lots of different islands there's really shallow water in some places there's really deep water in others and that makes for all these different habitats we're also kind of just at that cusp so we get some arctic animals coming down a couple of years ago there was a walrus seen here uh, oh. there, i mean there's currently one in wales as well yeah. but, um, uh, we also occasionally get kind of warmer water species coming up uh, so last year one of my colleagues out in the boat uh, saw a leatherback turtle just off the isle of muck so it's this kind of incredible mixing of warm and cold waters different habitats mean that there's just incredible range of different species so harbour porpoise which i've been waxing lyrical and sharing my love for is you know one of the smaller ones but we've got things like resident populations of bottlenose dolphins resident populations of killer whales uh we get visitors like minke whales humpback whales sperm whales and it's really exciting here on the west coast because when you go out you kind of never know what you might see mm. You might see nothing. It is the west coast of Scotland. It's often raining. It's sometimes really cold. Uh, but I've definitely found myself staying out just that extra 10 minutes, just wondering if there'll be something that I'm going to spot soon. Yeah. You kind of mentioned it already, but that's what I was going to bring up. I was going to say, why is the west coast of Scotland so awash with all these amazing sea creatures and is it to do with feed and also breeding i mean do, do, do you know do, do different species come in to breed in the west coast or is it mostly just they're following food mostly the the species that aren't resident here are coming here kind of in the summer for food um, yeah. the wonderful scottish cuisine obviously well known <laughs> so something like a minky whale they're breeding kind of down in more warmer waters um, right. and then travel to scotland every year hmm. so the third type of data that we collect from Silurian um, is photographic data, so photo ID. So we are taking photos of every animal we encounter, uh, looking at the unique patterns, coloration, scarring, shapes to track individuals. Yeah. So this is a kind of non-invasive way for us to, to track individuals. So if we stay on minky whales, we're soon going to launch an updated catalogue, actually, but we've got a catalogue of individual minky whales that we can recognise from their scarring or from their coloration or something like that. And uh, using photographs, we can track them. So there's a kind of local celebrity called Noble, uh, who has his, his or her very own Facebook group 
there's a song on YouTube called Nobble the Minky Whale. Wow. And actually a local wildlife guide has just written a, a kid's book called Nobble the Minky Whale. Wow. So Nobble is, yeah. is one of Mole's celebrities. Yeah. So we can recognize Nobble because, as you can probably imagine, on the very tip of the dorsal fin is a Nobble. Mm. So very unique shape. Most of our sightings of Nobble come from Sea Life Surveys, the, the whale watch operator that I spoke about before. Um, they have a bit of a competition every year. Who's going to be the first to spot Nobble? Mm. I think the prize is a, a Mars bar or something. <laughs> Mostly <laughs> it's kind of bragging rights. Um, so they take photos and we're able to, to put that into the catalogue. So I think Nobble was first seen in 2002 and has been seen pretty much every year since then in pretty much the exact same location. Mm -hmm. So this is an animal that is traveling thousands of miles and coming here pretty much to the same place off the Isle of Col. And it's kind of incredible that just from photographs, we're able to understand so much about this individual, mm -hmm. but also kind of more generally about the health of the population by tracking them. Yeah. Well, that brings me on to one of the things I was going to ask. I mean, you, yeah, on the, the website's amazing, by the way. I mean, I had good fun looking at it. There's a whale. Is it just a whale tracker on it? Or is it? do you track all sorts of different species? Am I right in saying that people can go on and kind of notify you if they've spotted something on the website? Absolutely. So we have what we call the whale track community, which is people all across the West Coast or people who are visiting the West Coast can download our app or visit our website. And they can report sightings of whales and dolphins to us. I've said before, we've got this research boat, you know, we sail as much as we can, but, you know, that's only one little point of data on the map. Yeah. But by using an app and asking, you know, everybody to report into us, we can get a much fuller picture of, of what's happening in our seas. I mean, so we, we've always done community sightings um, and it used to be this really fiddly form that you filled in on our website and you know thank you so much to all the people who contributed back in those days but back in 2018 we we launched this app and it it just really exploded you know in the first two months i think we had more sightings reported into us than we'd had for the previous entire year yeah our science manager has uh, a tough job keeping on top of all that mm. the app's really really simple to use anybody can use it it kind of really talks you through it you can kind of let us know your experience, confident you feel. You know, we actually do use citizen science data. I get asked quite a lot, how can you kind of do research or inform policy using citizen science data? Because how do you know if somebody says they've seen yeah. uh, a bottlenose dolphin, whether or not they've actually seen one? I mean, that's something that Lauren works really hard on. If somebody says that they've seen a humpback whale up near Glasgow um, what we usually do is we follow up on that we'll maybe give you a phone send you an email you can submit photos in with your sighting so if you have seen something and take a photo then we can kind of confirm mm. that sighting using that as well I think it's amazing generally you know trying to decide what to do over the weekend I will open whale track have a little look at the live map see what's been seen where and kind of decide where I might go for a walk based on oh first minky whale of the season has been spotted off North Mull. Uh, maybe I'll go for a walk up that way. Yeah. Um, so as well as giving us, you know, fantastic data that we can use to kind of better understand the species in our water. It's also just a really fun interactive tool. Mm. Um, and it's got an ID guide in it as well. If you see something, you're like, I have no idea what I've just seen. There's photos in there and, yeah. and we're a friendly bunch. So if you have no idea what you've seen, 
we're all trained in kind of talking you through that sighting of what you observed, what the behavior was, how many it was, what size it was, mm. to kind of better understand mm. what you've seen. Yeah. Um, so No, it's, I mean, it's, it's very user-friendly. I mean, I have to say, even for anyone who's not maybe well used to, to using these kind of things on the website, it is really cool. Um, if we manage to get any holidays up the West Coast this summer, then people should definitely have a look at it and download it and look at it, as you say. So well, let's chat a wee bit about the seas and the ocean in general. Um, what pressures are they increasingly facing? I mean, particularly in general, but particularly in the West Coast of Scotland, what are the problems? So something that I think is great that has happened in, you know, maybe the past 10 years or so is that our seas have really become the forefront of a, the kind of public understanding of the issues around them. I kind of call it the blue planet effect. Yeah. Like, thank you, David Attenborough, mm. for, for raising all this. It's incredible mm. that if I now go in to speak to a school, for example, all the kids in there know about the problems of things like plastic pollution. Yeah. And, you know, plastic pollution is a great example because that's something that we can all do something about yeah. as individuals we can recycle we can go and do a beach clean and we can actually individually make a huge difference um, to the species in our waters a lot of the work that we do the Hebridean Wild Dolphin Trust is with the kind of lesser known threats mm. so um, a good example could be noise pollution I've spoken before about whales and dolphins kind of really using sound and using the kind of soundscape to see and hunt underwater but our seas are becoming much noisier so boats fish farms lots of industry and kind of pleasure things are making our underwater environment really noisy and if you've got something like a harbour porpoise that is needing to eat a huge amount and needing to be hunting almost constantly and requiring sound to be able to navigate and to be able to identify prey noisy seas are a huge problem. Mm. There's currently actually a PhD student studying the impact of noise on the harbour porpoise populations here on the west coast using our data. So really looking forward to kind of the results of that. It, it is a tough one. There's, there's a few things that we're particularly looking at. Uh, fish farms on the west coast are a huge industry. They're a huge form of employment for the island communities. But one of the concerns is the use of acoustic deterrent devices. So these are known as ADDs or also known as seal scarers. So big problem with fish farm is if a seal gets into your pen, they will eat a lot of the salmon. Stop their feet. Yeah. Absolutely. And there's not much that you can do to stop a seal getting in. So one of the ways that some fish farms do is they play really loud, awful noise as a deterrent to kind of scare away seals. The effect of this is really questionable. There's limited evidence to show that it does actually permanently scare seals away. Yeah. It might scare them initially and then they'll get over it. But what we do know is that it definitely scares away harbour porpoises. Mm. And, you know, because they're doing lots of foraging on the seafloor, sea lochs are like the perfect habitat for the harbour porpoise. Um, so there's a lot of overlap between fish farm and harbour porpoise areas. So, you know, that's that's something that's ongoing, something we're working with and something that like hasn't made it really into the kind of general public understanding at the moment. You know, we know yeah. about plastic. We know what we can do. You know, a lot of the threats facing at the, us at the moment, you know, particularly things like climate change often make us just feel really helpless. 
like there's nothing we can do that's why you know plastic is such a great one because we know what we can do there and we can individually all help but when it comes to things like noise pollution you know what we're working on at the moment is very much at a policy level my director Alison and uh science manager Lauren are working with a group of other charities to kind of advocate government and look at the problem of ADDs. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a big thing that we're working on at the moment. And um, there's a few other projects that probably won't speak to Lauren to talk about in more detail. But one of her big projects at the moment um, that she's going to be releasing a report on pretty imminently, um, so look out for that, is whale entanglement. Uh, that's where a whale will become entangled in usually fishing gear and unfortunately whales and dolphins are mammals they need to come to the surface to breathe they can get caught up and they can drown you know we're looking at maybe you know five whales in scotland a year become entangled you know it is a concern one of the most frustrating things about entanglement is that creel fishing which is the kind of big problem with this is otherwise the most sustainable fishing that you could have um the creel industry in scotland you know it's again it's an amazing employer on the west coast and it is heartbreaking for the fishermen to come across you know not only would they lose their gear in that instant but nobody no fisherman out there wants to harm a whale no so many of our sightings are coming in from the fishing community we try to work with them as much as possible we know that they're not out there deliberately causing harm to these animals And we've actually been working really closely, us and a bunch of other charities, uh, with the Scottish Creel Fishermen's Federation to kind of look at this problem and better understand, A, is something like five whales a year, you know, a huge problem on a population level? You know, is this something that we need to be incredibly concerned about? Obviously, any individual death is heartbreaking, um, particularly because whales are a very kind of emotive animal I guess you know people do really feel that connection we know they're incredibly intelligent we know they have strong social bonds it's something that is important for us to still understand five minke whales in Scottish waters this is the same population of minke whales that are going up to Norway and Iceland and still being subject to industrial whaling how much Mm. of a problem is entanglement on a population level one of the things that Lauren's looking at is kind of looking at scarring on live animals and kind of seeing if we can work out a bit more about the survival rates, if we can look at these scars to kind of get an yeah. idea for what type of gear, you know, is a particular part of the line of creels that's causing this. Mm-hmm. So it's very much a kind of ongoing topic that we're studying that we still don't really know enough about. Um, we know it's a threat, we know it's a concern. You know, it, it's something that I'm kind of really proud of for our organization is because we're a research-led organization, we're not a campaigning charity in the kind of traditional sense. I feel like we can work closely with the industry to come up with solutions together. I don't want people to leave this and have a bad idea of Scotland's fishing industry because, you know, the Creel fishermen are fantastic guys. You know, we, mm. we work closely with them. Yeah. No, and they're, they're communities that have been there for hundreds, if not thousands of years, and it's their livelihood, as you say, and it's the same all over the planet, no matter what job you're doing. Every kind of job we do affects the environment in some way, and it's just trying to 
make sure it works you know for both and for everyone involved but as you say I'm sure the people I can imagine I know people that live over in these islands and and they're as I say the ones who've grown up there and and know the whales and dolphins and the different species better than anyone so they you know they care about them more than anyone as well absolutely um it sounds like you as you say, the the, entang- the kind of details of the scarring and stuff, that's quite interesting. Yeah, you could try and work out what particular things are maybe causing them to get caught more if there's if there's ways we can change the way that we're doing it. But no, as you say, if it, as a research-led kind of organisation, that's that's what you do. So that sounds like you guys are doing, doing loads of work um, towards helping it. And you mentioned earlier on the West Coast community is out of killer whales or orcas. So can you tell us a wee bit more about them? Are they the only ones in the UK, am I right in saying? So they're the only resident population in the UK. You kind of get two different types of populations. We get resident or transient. We do get transient killer whales, particularly kind of North Coast Scotland and the islands like Orkney and Shetland. So these are killer whales that travel down from kind of more Arctic areas, places like Norway, and uh, they come to Scotland every summer to hunt seal pups mm. and then they kind of leave again so the resident population are kind of here year round we consider them resident because they've been seen every month of the year here in the west coast of scotland but they are incredibly wide ranging so they've been seen on the east coast they've been seen off ireland they've been seen off wales so yeah it, we call them the west coast community because this is where they're kind of most commonly seen um <laughs> I actually uh, saw them for the very first time last summer. So I've been here on Mull for four years and last summer was the first time I saw them and got a phone call from a friend on a boat who said that they were kind of off the north coast of Mull. I took a bit of a sneaky long lunch break, jumped in the car and uh, spent a good hour kind of watching them from the coast. And what's particularly incredible about killer whales is the sheer scale of them they were not close to the coast but because they're so enormous you could just see them so uh one of the west coast community you're talking maybe like nine and a half meters long uh with the males their dorsal fin is about two meters high so absolutely huge huge dolphin really incredible to see so the west coast community they are not a healthy population we have really really serious concerns about them so what we always say is that there's eight members of this population. However, in the last five or six years, only two individuals from this pod have been seen. Um, so we are incredibly concerned. We recognize the individuals, as I said before, based on the kind of unique coloration and scarring and shape of the dorsal fins. So the most easily recognizable member of the pod is John Coe. He's got this massive chunk out of his dorsal fin. And every so often people also see his tail and there's a huge, almost like comic book chunk taking out of that. Um, So he's really, really distinctive. I mean, the the size of them and the unique shape of his fin is fantastic because that means that somebody can send us really shaky mobile phone video footage Mm. and we're able to to track him using that footage because he's so recognisable. As an organisation, we've been going for 26 years. In that time, there have been no young in that pod. We know that some of the individuals in the pod are definitely quite old. There's a, I, I still can't believe how cool this is. Uh, one of my former colleagues, 
was able to use this photo ID method to match Comet, one of the males who hasn't been seen in quite a while, with footage from the news from the 1970s of a dolphin that swam up a river in Ireland. Now, they called him on the news Dopey Dick because he (laughs) swam up a river. Yeah. but looking at the shape of his fin, we were able to match that to Comet. So we know that in the 70s, Comet was a fully grown adult male. Whoa. Killer whales have like a really similar lifespan to humans. Um, it's another of those things that make them incredibly relatable. So in the wild, you're looking at m- maybe 90 years that we'd expect them to live. Mm. Um, humans, killer whales, pilot whales, and a couple of other whale species are the only lucky mammals to go through the menopause. <laughs> oh, the so, Killer whales, incredibly relatable. Yeah. So we know that Comet at least was fully grown in the 70s. You know, we know they haven't had young anytime recently. Uh, we know that there's only eight members in this population and they are a very distinct and unique population. Uh, the scientists call them ecotypes. You know, I've mentioned that we have other killer whales that come down here. These are a really different population. So the transient whales are one to two meters smaller and they've got kind of different coloration patterns they even have a different diet and that Mm. is why the west coast community are of such concern so the west coast community are purely mammal eaters eating seals they're eating whales and dolphins there was one that washed up uh quite a few years ago that had minke whale baleen in its stomach um so these are top predators and they're eating at the very top of the food chain The transient species have a much more kind of varied diet. They're eating fish as well as the mammals. Now, one of the problems with being mammal eaters is, again, I'm going to use a horrible science word, (laughs) bioaccumulation. Basically, that means the higher up in the food chain you go, Mm. the more concentrated toxins, for example, become. So, you know, things like mercury, for example, are really, really high concentrations. The reason that we we know that this is a huge problem with the West Coast community is there was a ninth member of the pod, a female called Lulu, who washed up on the Isle of Tyree in 2016. First things first, she she died by getting a rope entangled around her tail fluke, Mm. which, you know, with a killer whale is incredibly rare. Um, Because they're so intelligent, they're, you know, a really mobile species. We don't commonly think of them as as high risk with entanglement. So the Scottish Marine Animal Stranding Scheme and the Museum for Scotland, uh, National Museum of Scotland, carried out a necropsy, which is kind of an autopsy on an animal. And they were able to learn huge amounts about Lulu by looking at her. They found out that she was kind of maybe around 30 years old, which would be well into kind of sexual maturity. Um, However, in that time, she had never given birth and she'd in fact never even been pregnant Mm. so they they then kind of analyzed her for toxins and what they found was that she had the highest concentration of a chemical called pcb ever found in a marine mammal anywhere in the world there's a kind of considered safe level she was over a hundred times over that considered safe level pcbs were banned in the UK back in the late 1980s, early 1990s. They're not something that's still actively used. Unfortunately, they are still in the environment. Mm, um, of course. So because they're top predators and this thing of bioaccumulation means that she's got incredibly high concentrations 
of PCBs. Now, the problem with PCBs is they cause infertility. They cause problems with the mind, um, which is yeah. why we think she could have gotten tangled because um, she was suffering from, from neurological problems. It actually means that it, it's very unlikely that our resident population will carry on. Yeah. It, it's something that I find incredibly challenging to talk about as somebody working in marine conservation. You know, within my lifetime, I mm. don't expect that these animals will, will still be here and that actually we've passed the point where anything can be done. Mm. So at the moment, there's two members of the population that have been seen recently and have been seen fairly regularly. Um, so that's John Coe and another male called Aquarius. Seeing them last year was incredible. It was, but it was also incredibly emotional. Yeah. You know, it is one of the, the huge challenges of marine conservation is I've said before how great the problem of plastic is because we can do something about it. Uh. The problem facing these killer whales is something that is incredibly historic. Um, uh and that, that really there's nothing that we can do. Luckily, the transient populations, because they have this more varied diet, they are healthy, they are breeding, they're having young. Yeah. So, you know, there will still be killer whales seen in Scotland, but this really incredible, unique little population here in the west coast of Scotland, the, the outlook is, is not good. Not great. And I mean, it's, it's awful, but I mean, one thing I was thinking there when you were talking was, it's an example, though, of what an impact humans can have, because as you see, even though that is, you know, it's not being used anymore in, in the country, it's still in the environment, as you say. So it's showing it's evidence of how much of a huge impact we can have, not only in the current species and things that are you know living just now, but in the future generations. So even though it is heartbreaking, as you say, it's, it's a good story to be able to tell, to illustrate kind of what impact humans are having and how important it is to, to it's also for me illustrating how important it is that you as you say utilize citizen science because if you're if you're not seeing that many of them you know if if more people listen to this podcast and they happen to be on the west coast of scotland you know and they see see a killer whale they can maybe help to to id them absolutely um but it is it is so important as you say so obviously our listeners are always keen to hear about how our guests get into their line of work um, so can you tell us a wee bit about your background and how you got into the role that you're in today? I, I feel like I it's a bit of a kind of roundabout journey to mm -hmm. get there. And, you know, this is a hugely competitive field. Mm. And I don't think mine would be the most straightforward route to, to emulate. <laughs> I went off to uni to study geology. Um, because you know geology rocks <laughs> uh, yes yeah um and really enjoyed it loved the field work loved being out and kind of looking at things following that I did a master's degree in climate change cool. and you know climate change is it's something that we all feel very strongly about and really incredible about this master's degree was that it was kind of interdisciplinary so it had social science as mm -hmm. well as the kind of strict physical science side of it. Mm -hmm. um, so I had amazing lectures um, and, and that's very much something that's kind of influenced me going more into the kind of community engagement side rather than the science side is because, you know, right now that's the work that I think is really important and needs doing. You know, people still don't even know we have whales and dolphins in Scotland. And sharks. 
and sharks. I always talk to people about sharks, the different species around about Britain, and they just are like, what? Can't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So that was an amazing uh, degree to do. I started a PhD. I was looking at, again, more fancy science words, diapycnal mixing mm -hmm. uh, around Antarctica, which basically means kind of cross-density mixing. Um, so I was very lucky enough to to go out with British Antarctic Survey, yeah. spend a few months on a boat. I mean, I was in a cargo container lab on the deck of the ship and I was doing 12-hour shifts. So it's not the most glamorous no. thing. It was an incredible, incredible experience. Yeah. Um, but, you know, then I was sat at a computer 12 hours a day writing code and yeah. Uh, it, yeah, wasn't really the life for me. Um, you know, I, I kind of studied this whole field because I loved being outside and I loved being, mm. you know, active. And it turns out that the research I was doing was all about writing code. So I quit my PhD, hopped on a 10-hour train back to Scotland, spent a summer waitressing up at my mum's on the Isle of Lewis. Mm. And you know what? I loved it mm. uh, because the people who visit the west coast of Scotland are really interesting people and mm. it's fantastic kind of spending my time talking to people about the local area and things like that. I realized I didn't actually want to be a waitress <laughs> uh, my entire life and I you know I was scrolling through environment jobs kind of trying to see something that would catch my eye. Up until I quit my PhD I'd been so incredibly driven I knew what I wanted to do I knew I wanted to do research so it was kind of incredibly challenging to be all of a sudden like wait I don't know what I want to do uh -huh. so I was desperately looking for something that kind of grabbed my attention uh -huh. and I saw an advert for a six-month volunteer placement on the Isle of Mull to do with whales and dolphins and I was like well I don't actually know anything about whales and dolphins all my kind of background is like physics and chemistry and uh -huh. you know the carbon cycle uh -huh. I was like I'll give it a go. Really? It sounds like a great way to spend six months. So I did a, a volunteer placement, uh, kind of doing community engagement and education. So lots of going into schools, talking mm -hmm. to kids about whales. Mm -hmm. It was a really, really steep learning curve for me, because as I said, you know, if you'd asked me before the placement whether a killer whale was a whale or a dolphin, I'd have probably said whale, because yeah. that's the name, right? <laughs> Absolutely fell in love with it, fell in love with the people that I was working with fell in love with Isle of Mull, where we're based. And really, really luckily, at the end of the six-month placement, there was a job with the organization setting up the Hebridean Whale Trail. Mm. So I spent two years as project officer setting up this kind of network of land-based whale watching sites and traveling around all the islands, getting to know the communities. It was an absolute dream. Um, mm. And luckily, you know, four years later, I'm I'm still with the Hebridean Wild Dolphin Trust, still incredibly passionate about what I do and feel incredibly privileged to mm. be able to do this. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it just shows that um, getting out there and volunteering and networking, as you say, ends up positive. Um, as you say, if you hadn't taken that chance, you might not be in the situation you are now. Absolutely. It's one of the frustrations with this field because it is so competitive if you do want to get into conservation you will have to volunteer mm -hmm. i spent six months working for free with the trust nine to five and i had two evening jobs mm -hmm. and i was exhausted by the end of the six months but if you're passionate about it 
it's something that I feel incredibly strongly about. I kind of manage our volunteer placements at the Trust now. Mm. And, and really luckily I was able to create um, a couple of new volunteering opportunities. Obviously these have had to be on hold, but we're not able to offer mm. volunteering at the moment. Mm. Mm. And hopefully we'll be able to restart some of these things maybe next year. I know how important volunteering is for getting into this mm. industry. Um, so we all really, really try to to make sure that volunteer placements with us are really worthwhile, that get a quality experience, you get to learn about the things you want to learn about and that you're kind of well supported and also appreciated. You know, we we couldn't achieve what we do as an organization without our volunteers. So so yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. And hopefully in the next year as you say things will get a bit safer and everyone will be able to to get involved a wee bit more now you mentioned obviously volunteering how can listeners learn more about your work or get involved first of all hwdt.org um that's our website download our app it's called file track there's a few other apps out there now if you don't live on the west coast of scotland um have a little google search there's definitely things that you can do in your local area um to help monitor wildlife as well but yeah, whale track, join the community. It's it's really great fun. Hopefully we'll be able to start our boat-based research again shortly. Um, we are currently fully booked for this season, but we do have the schedule for next year up on our website already. If you want to come and live on a boat for, for seven to 12 days and look for whales and dolphins, it's great fun, cool. camaraderie, <laughs> whales and dolphins, everything. Brilliant, brilliant fun, great experience. Yeah, there, there's loads of different ways that people can get involved. If you are deciding that you want to have a holiday this year and you don't want to risk going abroad, um, check out our Hebridean Whale Trail. So we've got a website, which is whaletrail.org, and you can kind of find out a bit more about places here on the West Coast um, and maybe plan a, a little trip where you can go whale watching here in Scotland. We, we very much advocate slow, sustainable tourism. Um, mm. Hope you will spend time in the communities and kind of, yeah, really get to know the incredible landscapes and wildlife and culture here on the West Coast. Yeah. No, that all sounds great. Um, you're definitely selling it to me. I want to come <laughs> up um, in the summer if it's allowed. And, and I mean, I know it's a beautiful part of the world, so I do highly recommend anyone who's not anyone who's listening who's not visited to to try and get up there at some point over the next year or so absolutely we've got a visitor center in Tobermory and if you want to come and talk to me about whales as Katie is finding now once you get me on the topic it's very hard to get me to shut up so come in and we'll talk about whales sometime into the discovery center yeah it's just on the main street isn't it in, it in is. Tobermory yeah it's not a big place so you'll be able to find it but no that we have run out of time unfortunately as I say we could keep chatting for ages I'm sure but Siobhan thank you so much for coming on Weebly Dot today it's been a pleasure to speak to you and hopefully see you sometime in the summer if I come up fantastic thank you so much for having me and uh giving me a platform to talk about whales.